We talk about being world-class in every little portion of the job. You can't waver from that mindset. What's world-class mean for the guy that's basically punching out the house? It might not seem like much, but it's a huge job. What's world-class mean for getting the job ready for the next trade? Every little detail matters and has a significant impact down the road for 500 homes. Welcome to episode 127 of the AFT Construction Podcast. And in this episode, we have a good friend, Ben Horning, who's general manager of Burke's Homes out in the great state of Pennsylvania. And Ben and I have known each other for many years throughout social media and through Instagram, met at the builder shows. And Ben has been huge on company culture. What's unique about their firm is they have over 100 employees and how they've been able to keep this amazing reputation, not only internally, but also externally. They have an amazing. Uh, base of subcontractors and trade partners. And we spoke a lot about how they keep that relationship and how systems are so important, how they manage building in three regions, how they work with both uh, the infrastructure of buying their own development, their own land, doing their own homes, and then also uh, doing scatterlot customs for clients. So just how he breaks it down with that communication with their trade partners, with their customer base, how they work with lump sum pricing, and of course, working with family, which is always challenging. There's just so much information from Ben, a great resource. So without further ado, let's get started. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. I'm Brad Levitt. And today we have Ben Horning, who is GM, General Manager of Burke's Homes from the great state of Pennsylvania. So welcome, Ben. Thanks, Brad. Great to be here. Yeah, I actually feel bad because I actually had my Builder 20 meeting out there in Hershey. And I'm like, you know what? I probably should hit a Ben and drove over there and saw you for a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's really it's it's like an hour away. Um, like I said, one of our regional offices is right around the corner from there in Harrisburg, so it's not it's not far. Hershey Park is a good place, you know. I will say it was really nice the time of year I went. It was a a little cold, not too bad, you know, in October. But I can't imagine right now in January. So I think I'm pretty happy here in Phoenix. So yeah, it, I mean it's <laughs> well, it's warming up. It's 27, so. <laughs> it's it's cold. this morning i think it was like 33 which is like about as cold as it gets for us and i'm like oh, I, I can't handle Ooh, yeah. this this is not gonna work yeah yeah well before we we go into anything I, I don't know if i told you this one of our employees lives in scottsdale right she's now currently vir- virtual employee yeah yeah she, so let me she, ask you that how this, this is something there. i've tried to understand how do you go virtual in construction like or, or what's the role they play i should say so she, her name's Megan. She does um, like project coordination for uh, our on your lot division. So on your lot to us is is like what you do. You know, you're building for people on their own land. So not, you know, you guys don't buy much of your own land, right? Right. We don't buy any of our own land. Yeah. yeah. So for us, primarily we work in um, communities that we own. So we we, we also do... Uh, about 40 a year with people who own their own land. And that, that's what she does. So she does project coordination. She helps them with selections. Um, and now, I mean, with a lot of people working from home anyway, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. She does a great job. So do, do you make her wake up extra early since different time zone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys, it's like weird. It's like two or three hours, right? Yeah. Cause we, Arizona, one of my favorite things about moving to Arizona is something that everyone should adopt is there's no such thing as daylight savings time. So we don't have, we don't change the clock. 
So that's why in the winter, you know, we're on the the mountain time, right? Which is two mm-hmm. hours behind you. And then, you know, summer, we flip back to the West Coast time. So, which is yeah. pretty nice. I mean, I don't know why we still do that, but. Yeah, that's stupid. Anyway, that's not why you had me on. That That's not why I had you on. So, Ben, I mean, the reason I had to have Ben on, I mean, he is, uh, you know, we've been friends now through Instagram and media networking events for many years now. And, you know, Ben, you're someone I really respect and um, have a lot of knowledge. And I know one thing that I know you and I have spoken about a lot offline is company culture, which is really big. And you have a very unique company culture that I want to get into because, you know, it's one thing when you're a company of my size, you know, 15, 16, as opposed to 120. And I think it's really mm-hmm. difficult when you're at that level. But before we get into that, I mean, right now in this uh, absurd market, we're talking about the Builder Show that's coming up and we'll be out there, the complexity trying to get out there. But what are, you know, especially for you, because you have such a diverse product, you know, as you mentioned, where it's clients own their own land, you have some where you're doing your own developments. And so what are some of the challenges you're dealing with right now? Well, it is multifaceted because of the different products. So we do, um, we do anywhere from starter homes, townhomes, um, you know, in the, in the very low end of, of the uh, new construction market up to, you know, for us, $800,000, homes. That's expensive. That's, that's high end for us. Um, we don't build on side of cliffs or anything like that, like, <laughs> like you might. Um, so we're trying to be the best in every, you know, category that we're in. And we do fixed contracts, um, something that is, you know, a little different, I think, as well for you guys. How do you do that right now? Well, you buy right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, getting into the challenges, you know, the number one thing for any builder over the last 18 months, I wouldn't say number one, but one and one A is supply chain. So getting a handle of products, getting a hold of them in a timely manner and cost control. So cost control on that scale, going back to the fixed bid project, um, you know, we sign a contract with the homeowner, you know, anywhere from 60 to 90 days before we break ground. Um, and then th- that's the price. And uh, we don't we don't believe in escalation clauses because, you know, our build cycle is uh, isn't as long as you know those custom projects, and it's just when you're in a what I would consider a price sensitive market, it's just not something that that is going to fly. You know, we know some competitors who do it, and it's really difficult. So, what is the build cycle? And and it makes sense. I mean, I do know. Uh, and, and maybe you'll speak to this and, you know, from a national, like Arizona is a little unique because this market has a lot of big national builders, right? It's really dominated by the national brands. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of smaller companies. I mean, you're a big company, but in the grand scheme of things compared to small. national builders, different, oh, yeah. right? It's small. Um, definitely for me, I'm much smaller and we're kind of a unique product, but you know, for them, the, you know, they're going to come out and they're going to do their developments and they, you know, they're tracking this stuff, same as you, their build times are pretty quick. And so they may have price increases in the sense that, okay, well, we're going to sell the first, you know, 20 homes at a base package of, let's just say $500,000, but then we're going to release the next 30 homes. And now the base price for the same model is like 550, right? Because they're incorporating the current market pricing. I mean, is that a similar strategy to what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, we review our pricing on a weekly basis, right? And we 
we uh, we know, you know, it, generally speaking, pretty far out when when we're going to get an increase from somebody, but that's only on the big stuff. So lumber is it's always been a monthly thing, and we get new unit pricing, you know, down to the two by four every single month by the first of the month, and then that's locked in. So um, it's always splitting the risk generally between our suppliers you know they're gonna if if they see the futures going up and they know what you know what they're gonna have to buy it at they're gonna try and go up a lot you know we're gonna try and bring them down so we always know you know from a lagging sense of 30 days but things can change really fast you know like last may when the lumber went nuts um you know we had to take it on a chin for the next two months of starts you know we had to pay for for their sins of buying it wrong the previous months <laughs> so it's always a give and take but um you know the market's been generous obviously with you know the demand and and so you can be proactive with those price increases like if i if i know i got to go up five thousand dollars because of the market that's one thing but on top of that we've had all these price increase these cost increases that you you might add Ten thousand, and then you know you basically have to wait and see how it shakes out. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, you know, for those listening, may have not picked up on that, and it really caught my attention because you said, you know, we're checking our pricing weekly, and what's amazing to me, and I know this because of the organization you have been, is that for to be able to check this, I mean, I look at my systems, and to be able to update pricing weekly, I mean, this is a monstrosity, right? I mean, you have to have systems and. Mm-hmm. You have to know your pricing. You have to know your unit costs, as you mentioned, your database. I mean, you have to be tracking every stick of lumber and everything that goes into the home that you can update this weekly to really forecast your cost. Because with as busy as everyone is, you know, I look at it from a custom side, it's hard to get bids, right, from plumbing. It's hard to get bids from cabinetry. And if I was weekly trying to update that, but it's a different system, it's a different operation. And so it really speaks to the organization you have as a company because to be able to keep track of this on a weekly basis, I mean, it, it is extremely formatted. And I don't think people realize, you know, how much time that takes to build that system. Yeah, yeah. And and so w- we try to stagger it, obviously. So if we know, let's just say um, the, the big stuff, the lumber, the siding, the roofing, all those things, you know, they're generally going to, even in the worst time for for cost increases, they're going to give you at least a couple weeks notice, right? Um, you know, then you have the the smaller, you know, maybe the siding installers, the roofers, the the painters, those guys that have a lot of labor mixed in. They might just wake up, and generally it's January, right? They just got their their uh, taxes done or something like that. You know, they they realize how much money they're going to owe, and they're like, "Wow, I need to increase my prices." So if they all come in at once, you know, we're trying to say, hey, you got to hold up, you got to hold off a month. You got to come back to me in, in February because I'm working on this guy. You know, it's just this constant, constant dance. But at the end of the day, you know, our trades are built for the volume and they know that the way that we purchase things is going to be a little bit of that, you know, win some, you lose some, but you're always going to have a certain amount of work. You know, you're not. You're not going to be starving for work for you know more than a week. There's always consistent work. Well, it's interesting because you touched on a couple of good points there. Because it's one thing to track, 
you know, steel or siding or lumber, you know, um, as you're doing concrete, right? That, you know, these are big unit costs. They are changing. They fluctuate on a weekly, monthly basis. And so, but what's really hard is the labor side, especially in labor-driven scopes of work, right? Paint, drywall, um, you know, trim carpentry, whatever, maybe even framing for us, you know, I look at this where I know some of my trade partners that I've worked with for a long time, that it's so unique in this market where they're saying, hey, my employee or my team or my crew is going to X company because they're paying them $2 more an hour right across the street. And so you're dealing with this fluctuation of labor and it's a very competitive market. And so for you, I would imagine that's really difficult because as you're looking in your database, your painter may be charging you X dollars a square foot for the house, but now his labor rate's changing. And as minimum wage increases and which now mm-hmm. dictates every, it goes all the way up, right? Everyone else has to have a pay increase and, you know, healthcare and everything that goes into it. So uh, you, how, how do you open up that conversation with your trade partners uh, where it's not an open ticket, right? Where you have to be sensitive to what real costs are at this time with inflation, but at the same time, still protecting your client and yourself, you know, to stay in business. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant balance. Now we're fortunate enough to you know be spread all, spread all over the state and have this you know great database and access to. I know uh, what our our painters in State College. That's Penn State. We have a, a region, a division in Penn State that does about uh, hundred hundred twenty five homes a year, and you know they're three hours away, but it's a totally different market. So I know what he's paying. For his painters, and then we have another region in Harrisburg, which is about an hour away, and they're they're our biggest region. They're doing two hundred fifty plus. Um, I know what he's paying, and so I can I can look at all of that and say, well, this market's paying this, this market's paying this, and and then it always comes back to you know who is this guy that I'm dealing with? You know, if he's the best, he gets paid the best. It's just the way it is. Um, so it is it is a dance and and with the volume that we're dealing with sometimes you pay to play you know you need to bring on board a, a new trade that you've never used and and he's the most expensive and you haven't used him but you need the work done and you know so you just try and balance all of that out and hopefully get a a good result and we've been fortunate to have a lot of really good subs over the years guys that have been with us a long time but they can't do all the work, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just that, it's that give and take. And it really, uh, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about culture, but it, it always, it always is a, a really good picture of, of who we are as a company in the way we purchase things. You know, we're very transparent about wanting our trade partners to win and be successful and be profitable. And so we ask for that in return. And, and we're always transparent. You know, this is what it takes for us to be profitable. So now you know that. Where are you at? You know, what can you do for me? Does it mean you need more work for me to get a lower price? Does it mean that you need um, more heads up on schedule? Do you need, you know, more resources? Whatever it is. Um, but it's very relational the way that we purchase. And we like to, you know, even though we are competing against the Lenars and the Ryan Holmes and all those guys, you know, and, and we have a lot of similarities to them. We like to think that, you know, if, if they have to pick between the two, they're going to, they're going to want to work for us. I love that. And you know what, I'm going to, this is the path we can 
definitely go down. I'm going to come back to you know just as far as expanding the trade base, working these different regions. But maybe let's get into this company culture because uh, before we get into the internal company culture, you know, there at uh, at Berks Homes, you know, this is really key because what what you're showing is that there is a relationship between the general contractor, developer, as you will, with the trade partner, and that's mm-hmm. often overseen. And you know, you mentioned I want my trade partner to win, and it's a fine balance because. You know, you're still protecting your client, which has to happen. There's still relationships, you know, and you have to make sure that you're providing the best service for the best price. How have you done that to build relationships with your subcontractors, your suppliers, your trade partners, so that they're on board saying, hey, on board that, hey, when we're working for Ben, when we're working for Brooks Homes, like this is the the staple, like this is what we need to do to perform. This is the the level of quality we need to produce, right? Mm-hmm. So- the accountability really starts up front when we onboard them. You know, we always talk about like two sides of the fence in this relationship. You know, your side of the fence is the trade partner and my side of the fence as the uh, builder. And so what we need on our side of the fence to stay clean is we need to always have, you know, accurate purchase orders. We need to have, you know, really good communication on the schedule and we need to be really good on our pay terms. And we're talking about like you know, being world-class in all of those things is the bar. So in order for you to be successful as a trade contractor, I have to be really good on my end. And so if, if I can prove to them that we're performing at the high end on those items, it's always clear when they're not and vice versa. So, you know, sometimes you get into a situation, you're like hearing from you know, your production manager who is in charge of our superintendents, the guys who are in the houses every day, you know, we're having an issue with these uh, flooring guys, you know, they're, they're not consistent on their schedule. They're, they're not showing up on the days that they're scheduled for. So you call them in, have a meeting and, and you know, what's going on. And if, if we can say that we're clean on our side of the fence, it's just, it's very obvious. If we're not, then they say, well, we didn't want to cause a big stink, but this guy never calls me. You know, he doesn't tell me when he moves his schedule. Well, then it's a totally different meeting, right? Um, and, and we have a lot of those traits. We have a lot of guys who they don't want to cause issues. They'll take, you know, substandard um, expectations and, you know, that doesn't work. You know, we, we want to know when we're failing just as much. But... um Go back to reputation and stuff, and how how you how you get there. Uh, like I said, you know those those three things are are really critical. And you know, let's face it, pay terms might be <laughs> might be the number one thing. Um, you know, we 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 try and clean out the uh, the the payables. You know, um, every every two weeks at the most. Um, so you know, if we can get everything processed and and pay it in a week, you know, that goes a long way. Um, now we have a pretty big accounting team and a pretty, pretty detailed system. So, uh, you know, that'll always keep the guys coming back, you know, over and over. It's interesting. So, I mean, money speaks, right? I mean, a common term is you have to feed the meter, right? That, I mean, the reality is to keep the job progressing, like you have to continue that cash flow. Um, no one wants to be a bank, you know, the way we say that for another profession, you know, we're trying Mm -hmm. to. Do our side, and, and where it's a labor-driven market, I mean, you cash is king, right? You have to be able to hit payroll, and you know, to 
and, and, and that's really important for suppliers, trade partners, and, you know, clients to understand too, that, you know, as much as they can fund you, Ben, or we can fund, you know, our clients fund us, that we can, we can dictate those terms. We can be more demanding, if you will, or at least bring that partnership to a more clear expectation with the client. And this mm-hmm. goes back to early on. I mean, we're talking about systems and what's interesting from your, from the perspective you brought up, Ben, is that you're talking up. about, well, there's two sides of the fence. So our side of the fence, um, you know, it, that's one thing, but from their side, you know, making sure that they have clear purchase orders and that goes both ways for both sides. You know, you talked about pay terms, you talked about schedule and turning that around. I mean, two weeks, it's very impressive because I would imagine that, yeah, part of the reason some of these trades maybe don't want to raise um, any frustration with the team is because they like you, they like working with you and they don't want to, you know, create a problem. But at the same time, you want that feedback. I mean, that's part of the partnership. Yeah. I mean, any way we can get better, um, you know, it always is, it's always a little self-serving, right? You know, if, if, if we can get better, it means that we can demand more from our, from our trades. Mm -hmm. And um, in this, in this market, in this, you know, difficult supply chain where, you know, our, our average days under construction has increased, you know, uh, 45 days, which is a ton for us. You know, that's, that's yeah. just a lot. That's a lot of days. Um, every day that I can get back is, is huge, you know, because um, the mindset, this is where it is different than a lot of, you know, small custom builders or guys that are doing 10, 15 projects a year. You know, when, when I talk about cost savings or, or anything as it relates to uh, a house, you have to multiply it by, you know, we're going we're gonna to try and close four, 450 to 500 homes this year. So, you know, even if I save a hundred bucks a house, what does that do? You know what I mean? Yeah. Now imagine yeah, saving money a thousand. <laughs> but, it, but it is true because, I mean, I look at it even on my scale and we're going to have a production meeting later today with my team, which we do regularly. And, you know, one of the, the constant themes is build schedules are longer and it's, you know, it's hard to get material and labor and, you know, we're all dealing with some of the same things. And so what we're building a house today, I'm sure for you, Ben's the same thing. If you compare it to 2018 or 16, it's much different. And uh, it's a real thing we have to track and measure. And so, but part of that isn't just pointing the finger at the trade partner, right? This is where it's on us as owners that we need to say, okay, well, internally, what are we doing to be more organized? What are we doing system-wise so that they can be more successful? What are we doing to communicate our schedule? And when we communicate, are we ready for them, right? So that when they are limited in manpower and they can come out, are we ready? Is it a clean job site? Do they have access? Can they stage material? Have we ordered, you know, the tile and appliances in advance to make sure everything's ready for them? And and then checked it and made sure, you know, all of our built-in cabinetry, you know, everything's in its proper place that we don't have to cut drywall. So it's li- eliminating mistakes where they're not going back and having to rework and it creates frustration. And this is where, as you mentioned, if you're looking at it from that scope and that level to say, this project needs to be ready for them to become successful, our trade partner, and then be profitable, you know, their energy and focus and willingness to be on your job site is going to change. Yeah. Clean equals quality. We talk about that all the time. You know, it, you walk onto a clean job site, it's 90% of the time, it will be clean after the next guy. If they walk onto a dirty job site, 90% of the time, it's going to be dirty when they're done. <laughs> they're not going to clean up somebody else's mess, you know? And um, we, we, are, we, we like to hold people accountable, but we are very, very accommodating in 
in the sense of forgiveness, you know, like the, there's definitely like a three strike rule in terms of, you know, how we treat our subs. And um, so there's a fine balance there. You know, everybody knows that I like to be a nice guy and I don't want to, I don't want to ever change that. But at the same time, business is business and you, you know, there's nothing wrong with demanding, you know, the best from everybody. And we talk about being world-class in every little portion of the job. And that mindset is, you can't waver from that mindset. It always has to be, what's world-class mean for the guy that's, you know, basically punching out the house, you know, it might not seem like much, but it's a huge job. What's world-class mean for getting the job ready for the next trade? You know, every little detail matters. And has a significant impact down the road for 500 homes. I love that you said that. It's like, don't confuse my kindness with weakness, right? You can still be professional. You don't have to be screaming at people, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're, um, you can be pushed around, right? You still have to dictate the market and dictate your expectations. So what is, what have you found the best way to communicate that? Because I feel, you know, this has been a big part of our company for a long time, is site cleanliness. And it's still something that even today, when we have our production meeting, I'll remind my team again, we're going to speak about this today because it's just, it's like relentless. And I tell them, Hey, every time, like we've put it in our contract, we've, I've told my supers and project managers that when the trade comes to the job for the first time, you walk them through and you orientate them with everything and say, this is what we expect. Right. Uh, you know, what else can, can your team do to help with the site cleanliness portion? Well, it's never ending battle. You'll be talking about this 10 years from now. Um, it is, it's an expectation thing. And I think onboarding is a big deal. You know, it's, it's hard to teach old dogs, new tricks. Sometimes you have guys that have been working for you for a long time and, you know, they, they just kind of like slid into a bad habit. You know, that's, that's hard to bring them back a little bit, but onboarding is a big deal, you know, straight up, upfront, you're talking about it. The first day, you know, this is, this is how we do it. We have dumpsters. We provide dumpsters for everybody. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just a mindset. So we've gotten to the point now where even in our last production meeting, I sat in on, I don't usually sit in on them. I sat in on them and I said to each superintendent in our region, I said, if it's not clean, you don't click off on the PO. So I hate to do it. You know, but this is the only way that, that this happens sometimes is you don't, you don't pay them, you know, and, and they can wait for them to call and say, why haven't I gotten paid for this? Oh, it wasn't clean. Okay. Well, they're going to start, start not uh, approving our purchase orders. We better, we better do it. It is right in the contract, but you know, it's just a, it's just a matter of saying that this is a priority no matter what. And, you know, we do surveys with, with all of our customers. And, um, you know, it's been rough the last 18 months, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, you told me my house would be built in five months and it was six and a half or whatever it is. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of grace there. I understand that. But at the same time, one thing, we did this really big survey, reached out to people who didn't even buy for us. They were just prospects. Like, so it's huge sample size. The number one thing that people cared about, job cleanliness. You believe that? It's crazy. It's that amazing. was number one. That's what they that that's what they cared about when they drive into a community. Job cleanliness. So we always go back to that. 
You know, it, it's interesting you said I was in a meeting this morning with one of our vendors and, and they mentioned that just how in their network, when they look at builders, you know, from a, they're, they're just a supplier and they're like, but they work with the ultra high end, ultra luxury and those customers are always looking, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's high end. It doesn't matter if it's entry level. Like they care about you actually taking the time to be considerate of their investment because it's a major investment no matter what level, right? For mm-hmm. That they're putting in. And I love how you've made it, um, it, it it's punitive, but it's not overly punitive, right? It's like, we're, we're, we're not going to find you a ton of money, but you're not going to get paid, right? We're not going to feed the meter. And then it really catches their attention, you know, when it comes to signing the PO. And I may have shared this story before, but you know, the, the best example I have is when I, through college, I was working for a subcontractor and it was a, a company did a lot of work for the military down in San Diego. And we did work on the Naval bases and a lot of the schools, you know, a lot of federal work. And like anything, I mean, you're working in, I, I don't want to call it a remodel, but you're working on the military base, you're working in schools. And so these are finished projects where, you know, it's all the summer, so you're trying to get in and out. No one ever talked about site cleanliness and some of them weren't that great. But I remember one school when we went in and, and the superintendent, he pulled us aside our first meeting and his, this was a while ago. So he just bought a new digital camera, right? So it's a dating <laughs> me a little bit. But he told us, he said, look, if I find one scrap of wire, right? Or fiber optics or anything you're doing, you're getting fined 50 bucks and I'm sending it. And I just remember thinking, great, I'm going to get in big trouble for my boss like if I, or my foreman. And so we were super conscious as we worked through every classroom and we're pulling wire. Like we always make sure, okay, we inspected everything's clean. Okay, now we can move on. But it's because he set that expectation. And so many times, whether it's relationships or marriage or life, like if we don't give clear expectations, like no one's going to follow them. We can't just expect them without telling them what to do. It's it's 100% right. I mean, it, if I look at failures, we all have failures, uh, professional, personal experiences, things that, that I can look back on and, and, and I fell down on, it's it's my fault if I didn't set the expectations. You can't step back and say, why didn't this happen the way I wanted it to happen in my brain? And it doesn't work like that. You know, they didn't know that, you know, it's working with one of our guys who, you know, was just struggling on a, a couple of his tasks. And, you know, I, I was frustrated and, and I said to myself, well, whose fault is that? He didn't know what to shoot for. I wasn't giving him the expectations of, you know, what I needed from him. So, you can judge people after you set those expectations, right? Yeah, I love that. You can judge them after you set that. So how does that, you know, how have you built this company culture? Because this is something you've been big on. And and I know and you and I listen to different podcasts and we've networked and exchanged messages. And, you know, this is something that's always a big part of what you're doing, which I really respect. And so how, how have you been able to achieve a good company culture, not just with the vendors that we've spoken about, but now internally mm-hmm. with 100 employees? Well, it, you know, I... I can't talk about it without giving credit to my father, who uh, you know is the the founder of the company. Um, you know he's he's very generous, patient. You know all those things. Um, he's he's kind of mysterious in in the sense that uh, he doesn't he doesn't get really personal with people, but he gives them a lot of respect, and so he kind of keeps that mystique a, a little bit of where people really want to, you know, just do well for him. So it kind of starts with him and the culture he's created is, is this, this driven, you know, we, we have, we, we really, it's one of our core values. We care about people that are driven. That's, that's the people we want to hire. Um, well, I'll just tell you what they are. It's helpful, humble, 
aware and driven. So I can go down the list and, and, you know, we, we derive those. We, we recently redid them because, you know, it's, it's always important to revisit them, but those are characteristics of my dad, you know, being helpful in every situation, always willing to lend a hand. Maybe it's not in your job description, but if you can help, you're going to raise your hand and, and do the right thing. Um, humble. That's a huge one. You know, you're, you're never too good for anything. You're always, always, uh, willing to defer credit if that's necessary. Um, aware, you know, reading the room, understanding the, the, uh, the stakes of, of the situation that you're in, um, assessing the, the situation that you're walking into and then driven, you know, that just goes without saying, you know, we want people who not only want to be world-class or the best in, in their business, but they, they care about the goals of the company and achieving them and working together to get there. Um, that's, that's really important. And we, you know, we, we aren't, maybe the top of the compensation level, you know, we leave that to the, uh, the Lennars and, and those guys of the world. But, um, you know, our, our generally our compensation programs are incentive laden. So, you know, we're all pulling in the right direction and the way our company structured is we have the, you know, what we would call the home office, which is my office, my regional office. And then we have three regions. So we have this one, we have Harrisburg, we have State College. And so we, we have kind of three independent um, divisions that are all doing the same thing, just in different regions. We have our own teams. And so this back office, you know, the, the corporate structure, if you will, you've got the accounting team, the drafting team, the per, you know purchasing team, HR, all that stuff. Those people... They don't have that direct um, impact on the the front lines, the regions, but they're bonus too. So if they're in a community and they're they're seeing, um, you know, it, it's a mess, and 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 you know, our bonuses, everybody's got different structures. Some of them are based off of um, there's a portion that's that's homeowner satisfaction. There's a portion that's gross profit, there's their sales goals, all this stuff. But it's it's built in a way that everybody has a stake in the game. And if the guy that is affecting your bonus is falling down, somebody's probably gonna make him aware of that. And it might not be his boss. You know? Yeah, it's gonna be his associate. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to culture, I think that it it's felt like a family for a long time. Been in business uh, 1973, so you know, 49 years, um, and it, it's felt like a family for a long time. And that's what everybody always says. We we don't have high turnover. You know, we have uh, probably I think we have two employees who have been here over 30 years. Um, wow. A handful over 20, a lot over 15, um, surviving. You know the the recession, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that everybody will tell you that if they have a prospect for a job coming in, somebody's going to pull them aside and say, hey, this is a really good place to work. We're like a family. We love working here. It's the best place I ever worked, you know, and we're proud of that, you know. 
This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. They're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are of Build-A-Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests we've brought on the podcast are also Build-A-Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, as complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking, organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers. And through Build-A-Trend, this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Build-A-Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops you know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast, The Building Code. To learn more, head to buildertrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Build-A-Trend account. That's 60 days to make sure you love this product with no pressure, and I know you will. I love that, but I, you know, this goes back to the expectation side. I mean, what's amazing is you, you have these core values, right, that you talked about, you know, being helpful, humble, aware, and driven, right? And these are the core. So having a basis as a company, it just gives you leverage because when you're hiring somebody and you're vetting somebody, you know, you can go through those four things and without directly telling them, you can see if, you know, these are traits or attributes or, you know, part of their personality that they possess, you know, that if you're going to hire them. And then I, I remember when we went to, um, uh, there, there was a visit from one of our vendors is actually Cambria. We went out there and Cambria said when they're hiring someone at their corporate headquarters, they have all these cameras outside. And if someone walks across the grass, they don't offer them the job. They, wow. they actually watch them as they show up to the job. And if they walk on the sidewalk, you know, and you know, and it just, uh, I don't remember the actual reasoning. You know, I probably should remember that for giving that example. But I, th- but I remember sticking out just because they're like, hey, this is what we're looking for. I mean, this is the level of standard that we that we want, that someone's not going to cut corners, they're going to walk on the sidewalk and, and be professional. And you think about that, that if you have no standards, if you have no process, if you have no database of what you're looking for, you're not going to attract the right people. And really by attracting the right people, that's going to be just a, 
a huge leap start, you know, a huge leap in having good company culture. Yeah, and it starts, like I said, from the beginning, like like with the trades onboarding, right? So we have uh, our recruiter, and I'll never forget the the first time um, I went through, uh, you know, we did, actually I had one this morning for a position I have open. Uh, we just have a 30-minute meeting on on uh, what I'm looking for type of person, and then, you know, looks through all the resumes, who she's going to screen, who she's going to phone call and everything. and she said, I had this great candidate on paper, didn't have any, you know, connection to him. But she said, yeah, I've, I've, I've put him on the, um, you know, do not interview list. And I was like, really, why? You know, looks like a great interview. And she said, well, he didn't pass the humble test. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, he was so arrogant. He wouldn't fit in here. And, I, and so that, that was my time to be like, Hey, thank you. You know, thank thank you for filtering that out because she knows it. You know, it's not one of those values. And if if that's going to come through in a phone interview, you know, it's it's definitely going to come through in a personal interview. I love that. I love that you're actually going to that level and really looking for those during that first you know vetting process. You know, when you think about the money side, are are there ways to motivate employees through? good company culture or other ancillary benefits. I mean, how have you been able to do that? Because yes, you'd love to pay everyone top dollar and you know that'd be great. But the reality is things cost money, right? It costs money to run a business. There's risk, there's warranty, there's land acquisition. I mean, there's just so many things you're dealing with for for your side. How do you motivate people when it's, you know, just not about the dollar? Well, you are looking for that, you know, that perfect match. You know, you're you're looking for you know, your, your target market, if you will. So, um, you know, we've had, you know, a handful of guys just even over the last couple of years come to us from one of the public builders, um, and, and they're making more money. I just had a conversation with my, my colleague in Harrisburg, the GM there, who has a really good candidate for me in, in my region with the guy that worked for him at a public builder. And he's making great money. He's making great money. And I know that um, I'm not in that. I'm not in that conversation in terms of his compensation. Uh, but he's he's talked to him, and he knows the drill. And he's like, you know, it's he's looking for a great fit, and and he can afford to get paid less. And he's if it if it works out, he'd be willing to to do that. He knows our price range, and you know, it's not that far off, but. It's it's a pay cut, and um, it wasn't even a conversation. I've had a lot of those conversations. People want to, you know, be valued. They wanna, they want to come to work every day and like the people. You know, we have a lot of fun in our office. Um, we really like each other, and uh, it, it it makes a huge difference. I mean, it's kind of silly to say out loud, but not everybody gets along all the time. In, in most companies and, and you know, we, we have 120 people, so not everybody's going to be like best friends, but, um, at the same time, it's so important that they just quote unquote, get it. If that makes sense, they get the vibe and that we, we all care about each other that you can, you can overcome dollars, especially in this market when everybody's just throwing money, you know, it's, it's, they already they're already making good money. If you're leaving a job right now, you're probably already making good money. You're just 
Now you're just trying to find the right job, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you brought that perspective in because I, I've seen that as well. I mean, there's a lot to be said, you know, chasing the dollar, right? And this is something that you and I, is probably a big part of our career, right? Is chase experience, not money. And you think about, even to that point though, at some point in your life, you, you have to look at, well, what's priority to me? I mean, it's one thing to to have, to chase a dollar, but it's another thing for that life happiness, right? If I enjoy my coworkers, if I enjoy the company and the projects and the challenge that gives me and the camaraderie, you know, and the, and the fun times or, uh, you know, for us, you know, where I have a group text all the time with our team and, you know, we have fun, we have different memes that we share and, you know, just, you know, our production meetings and lunches. So there's like this time where we, we really build together outside of work. And, you know, some of our vendors will do some of these other activities, you know, like paintball or something. And it just brings, you know, top golf. And you just find that there's, we spend so much of our life at work, right? And if it's enjoyable, it goes a long way as opposed to just worrying about, you know, how much is this job going to pay? Yeah. Yeah. My office manager who I hired uh, two years ago, um, you know, she, she worked for a couple different companies for many years and, and she's just like, I, it's, it was like a breath of fresh air coming here. She's like, I just can't <laughs> wait. She's like, I can't wait to get in in the morning. And I'm like, wow, okay. You know, <laughs> you, don't, awesome. you don't expect to hear that, but you know, there's, there's a couple things that, that are counterintuitive that we've done too, that just has really worked. Like, um, we used to do a, you know, this big extravagant Christmas party, you know, at the country club and the dancing and the drinks and all that. And, you know, in the recession, when the recession hit, that was like, you know, first line item like that. Mm -hmm. We're not doing that, you know, save whatever, 30 grand or something. And then we started doing these potluck um, meals at Christmas. And, you know, when, as, as things progressed and, you know, the market got better and everything and we could afford to do it, that was a, a question that was posed. And it was unanimous. Much rather do the potluck. Everybody makes their own food, brings it, you know, we're just at the office, cost zero dollars. And then at the same time, it was even better because that those dollars are budgeted, right? So now they get to, you know, have like a, a cool little Christmas bonus as well on top of it. And we're, we're just, that that's a culture thing. They wanted to have more time just together. You know what I mean? So that- I love that. I love that example. I mean, that's just a great example. It just shows the, the closest that they'd rather, instead of go to the country club or some steakhouse, hey, let's, let's spend time together and and uh, and do our own thing, bring our own potluck. So how have you conquered the most difficult thing? I, a lot of the listeners have always reached out saying, Brad, how, how do you work with family? How do you work on transition? You know, especially as, you know, parents are looking to retire, they start the company, now the kids are taking over. I mean, it's such a fine and delicate process. And so uh, most people say, don't work with family. It's too hard. So how yeah. have you done that? Yeah. Well, I think that um, it's just like anything, you know, like if you're successful in life, there's certain attributes that that are always consistent with people when, when they do well, whatever it is, uh, sports, business, you name it. Um, and and then there's luck, and I think that's always part of it, right? If you're successful over a long period of time, you got to get breaks. You got to have have some some luck. You know, we we believe in our family and in creating your own luck, but at the same time, you you, you got to get lucky. And I, I think that we are a little lucky. So in our business, it's it's my dad. Um, he is 68. So he's 
he's still he's still here working every day, but he's not um, heavily involved at all. Uh, but he's very much in control still. And and then my sister and myself, those are the three family members that, that work here. My sister is two years older than me. And the personality dynamic, it, that's where the luck comes in, I think. It's the, the three of us that probably, I have four sisters and uh, and a mom, obviously. And so there's seven of us. Probably if you picked three to coexist professionally and then still keep that personal relationship, it's the three of us. Um, so that there's there's a little bit of luck there. Uh, my other sisters just you know never were interested in the business, and that was just um, you know their their choice. It was never it was never really uh, something that uh, my parents pushed down you know to us in terms of like this expectations my my parents are just wonderful people very um you know independent they they they, uh they really fostered that independence in us and so it was always you could do whatever you want you know and then that was very clear from an early age but going back to the family dynamic we did get lucky in that sense but at the same time we we are very cognizant of the other person in the room at all times so typically if there's if there's an issue and we might have a dis difference of opinion it's it's always clear that um and my dad just popped into the office um <laughs> <laughs> he snuck out um if there's a difference of opinion it, it's it's usually squashed really quickly because we can see the other guy's perspective the other person's perspective and um i don't know that there's any secrets other than you know, being honest, uh, that's, that's pretty simple there, but being honest about how you feel, you know, what, what your mindset is and, and being unselfish, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it is, it is a big operation and we're really fortunate to be in this position and, um, I don't take anything for granted. And that, that's, that's probably due to the way my parents raised me, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't take anything for granted. i work just as hard as anybody in the building and and really care about um the outcome for everybody involved well it's interesting i mean it goes back as you were talking about just it's not just a lucky part the personality side but going back to your core values that you spoke about earlier i mean helpful humble aware driven right and that's everything you touched on you and your sister your dad i mean this is that same dynamic right that you all these attributes you all possess and are important to you, right? So you're aware of each other and, you know, the, the humbleness side. So if you don't mind me asking, I mean, was there a reason your other sisters didn't want to be part of the construction world where they're like, hey, we're, we're good no. going in a different direction? <laughs> we, I, had, I had one sister um, that uh, just no desire, you know, just not interested at all, just very, uh, very independent, you know, didn't want to be tied down, just wasn't, wasn't um into the whole house building thing she actually works for us as a uh as a subcontractor kind of and, and helps decorate the model homes she's very des oh, nice. design oriented does like the furniture and design yeah so so it works out she she gets to and my mom does it so she works with my mom so they go all over the state you know she lives in uh, milwaukee and so she flies in and and uh, gets to spend the week with my mom when we have a model home ready my other sister, she lives in Denver. Um, she is she's really successful in her own right. She has a, a copywriting business for photographers. 
and um she just you know again not not interested and then my youngest sister's married to a farmer and um she she just likes uh the farm life and and you know taking care of her family so we're all very different but um yeah it just it, it just kind of ended up that way but my sisters are great you know we just don't have any conflict in in terms of the business whatsoever you know so how how's that transition been as your dad you know is is not as much of a day-to-day role as he's he's moving on at this point of his career you know how's that been you know organizationally you know with mm-hmm. you and your sister now just kind of working through that handoff of delegation and leadership yeah so we ha- we have a president who um Mike, who who kind of runs the show, you know, we really uh, we really love the leadership that he brings and the the vision casting, and and he's he's taken that that role from from my dad, yeah, five years ago or so. So um, that that's super helpful. And then you know, Katie and I bring uh, you know just a different skill set than Mike in terms of uh, you know the the day to day stuff and. You know, I, I probably am more wrapped up in my role as a regional general manager than an owner. Um, and you know, maybe that that'll change sometime soon. Maybe maybe sometime later. I don't. We we don't have uh, a clear direction on that right now, which is totally fine. I'm trying to build my region to be the best in the company, and that's a that's a big swing for me. <laughs> because I got some good competition from the other guys. So how do how do you break that up? I mean, this is what's amazing is is it's not like you have a hundred employees all coming out of the same office. I mean, you're regional. I mean, you're mm-hmm. in different parts of the state and and mm-hmm. far apart in some ways. And so, how have you worked on that organization from land development to systems to you know instruction and teaching and training and everything that goes with it? Well, the interesting thing is we ran the company out of this office. Um, up until when I started three, uh, two and a half years ago. So um, we were not regionalized up until then. So we had, um, we, we were dipping our toes into it. We've been in state college for 12 years, 13 years, and just ran it as, you know, a little satellite kind of, you know, have the superintendent and a lot of people driving from here three hours to, you know, Ooh. do all the other stuff. And, um, and so it was, it, it quickly became apparent the opportunity, not only there, but in, in our capital city of Harrisburg that, um, you know, once, once we, once we located the guy in state college that we, we could regionalize and we could separate and, and divide, um, then, then we found a, our GM in, in Harrisburg and, and then they uh, they came to me with the big ask uh, a couple years ago to to do it here, and um, so it, it is it, it's a, a fairly new work in progress, um, but it it kind of needed to happen, and, and it works way better than running you know out of a central location, being so far away. We've worked in Delaware, we've had communities three hours the other way too, um, but yeah, it's it. The division of labor is always the devil's in the details and, and having um, systems is everything, as you know. So how have you worked on land development? I'd imagine in that part of the country, it's not like it's out west where there are pockets of land that are just wide open. I mean, how much do you 
is there undeveloped land? Is there infill product? I mean, how do you work through the land acquisition portion between the different regions? Yeah, well, go back to our challenges portion. Um, you know, that's that's always it's like it's the un spoken challenge it's it's constant yeah because you're doing 400 homes i mean so this is like this is a major part of the company right so so we need to have you know and and we it might be 475 this year it's probably more like it so we need to have at all times we need to have about 1500 lots you know going three years is kind of the the goal 1500 lots under control so that's the primary uh, activity that that myself and my colleagues uh, engage in, which is is trying to trying to drum up land leads. And so it is is different in each region as well. State College is, you know, up until recently, it's it's like a hundred percent Penn State University. I mean, that's you know, you you've probably seen those towns where it's just all of a sudden there's a town and it's only because of the college. It's a mm-hmm. huge university, but at the same time, um, it's suddenly became a really great place to live. So up there, there's a lot of fields, there's a lot of farms, there's good zoning that allows to do what we like to do. Harrisburg is, uh, like I said, the state capital, so you have that stability. It doesn't go up a ton. It doesn't go down a ton. It's very stable. There's always jobs there, that kind of thing. There's a lot of developers out there. And then in my region, I'm closer to Philadelphia. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm fighting hand to hand with the, the big guys, you know, they're, they're gobbling up all the good stuff. So I got to be more scrappy, you know, I'll, I'll take, I'll take 30 lots. Uh, whereas the other guys, they might not touch, you know, in, in, in our company, they might not, not touch anything less than 50, stuff like that. Um, so it, it's, it is very difficult and it's, we have a, a, a land, um, vice president who keeps us on task um, with with that stuff. Before I got on with you, I had a meeting with him and we had this this really cool lot tracker that shows like graphs and charts and, you know, when it gets red, that's when you start getting nervous, um, you know, looking out 18 months, 24 months, that kind of thing. So it's just a constant, constant battle, but, you know, it always it always seems to fall together, you know. When you're worried, you might you might just come across those those six closings that you need to uh, hit your goals. You know. So, what's the proportion? Because I know you do some scatter lot where the clients own the lot. You know, what's the proportion of land that you own that you acquire that you're developing, mm-hmm. you know, building on as opposed to you know like custom per se? Yeah. So. Um, custom's kind of like a dirty word to us. We don't really like to use <laughs> custom, um, because custom is, is like Brad Levitt. Uh, <laughs> you know, custom to us is something that, um, they look at one of our floor plans and they want to change the kitchen a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. so yeah, we do, I think we'll, we'll do between 40 and 50 of those, you know, let's just say 500 homes would be on on uh people's land and um the rest would be in communities and those communities when i say communities you know i just picked up uh four lots uh which it sounds crazy but you know i need i need every lot i can get right now so that that we call them community homes because we're not you know we're not building for a homeowner on their land right so 
And that's interesting because, I mean, even if you're building for a homeowner on their land, though, there has to be at least a separation of systems because your build time, if you're doing 30 homes, right, and you can strategically plan that and forecast that, I would imagine that changes a little bit of the cost structure, timeline. I mean, there's because there's just other variables and it's not economies of scale. Yeah, yeah. So what we've done, actually, um, as of December, it was kind of like its own little division. Um and and actually, my dad was doing a lot a lot of that with that team because he likes you know he he likes the the variation of the jobs and stuff like that. So he he was kind of leading that charge, and that was something that I wanted to get off his plate. So since we do have three regions, we were doing those forty homes in each region. You know, like maybe ten, twenty, and ten um, in each region. So now we've rolled that up into the regions, and we're trying to give that team the resources that our guys in the communities have. So we're trying to standardize that even more and, you know, put the same processes in place so they have all the same resources because it is hard when you're you're just building 10 homes and we have a, a, a really wonderful sales guy who um who has been taking care of all all the regions on that end and you know, he's kind of like the the guy in the corner, and they're like, "Oh, I don't, I just, I don't want to deal with that." You know, guys, the, the purchasing guys and stuff. You know, I got I got ten houses sitting on my plate. I don't care about your one that's in a field somewhere. <laughs> and so we, you know, that was that was a problem that we identified and had to bring that in. And and now that's um, you know under under our control as the GMs, and I think it'll it'll probably clean that up and and make that process better as well. Well, it's the, the reality of it, right? It's, the, it's evolution, refining. I mean, you have to continue to work on that and find that process that's going to work and be most beneficial for everybody. So it's interesting. I mean, you've said, you know, just a few years. I mean, what was your uh, your career life before, uh, you know, coming into this role as GM? And, and was that always a plan at some point to come back and, and work on, you know, with the, within the family business? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a wild, wild experience now that I look back. I mean, I um I worked at the family business every summer. I was I was working for you know those Amish framers um, in high <laughs> school and college. I got my first taste of you know uh, high level production home building. At that time, I really enjoyed it. Knew I didn't want to do it you know as a career. Um, was going to college, chose finance and accounting, um, not because I liked it, but because uh, you know I felt like that would give me the best the best chance for success later. And, you know, now looking back on it, just a really lucky, good decision that I made. Um, coming out of college, I did work here for a couple years, um, 05 to 09, uh, you know, recession hit in 08. And, um, you know, I, I was looking around and I felt like um, I didn't want to be the son of the owner who was kept on the payroll because I was the son of the owner. Not that mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, but you know, I, I felt like it would have been a good, it was just a good time to, um, you know, spread my wings and, and do my own thing. It was getting into flipping houses for a couple of years. It was just a wonderful time of, uh, <laughs> you know, the recession. There was a lot of houses to buy, you know, there tough, were a lot of houses to buy. To that sell. was a tough time. That was a good, you know, good experience. Not no area got hit harder than yours, obviously, um, but it was a great experience. And it just kind of tripped into remodeling 
because that's what pe people thought I did. And um, I had no desire to be in remodeling, but I just, that was, <laughs> that was the opportunity that was given to me. Um, and just uh, ran with that, decided to make a, make a real company out of it after doing it just, you know, solo for, I don't know, 18 months, brought in the, the design portion of design build and um, did that for, brought on a partner in 2014, one of my really great friends and subcontractors and um, did that f until 2019 when I decided to join up with the family business. And it wasn't, I, I, I wanted to at that point, you know, I was, I was ready to come back and, and see the opportunity that was in front of me. And, you know, I had some, some head trash to get rid of, I think in, in terms of, you know, my, um, you know, my, my place in the company and that, you know, I, I earned it on my own and that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to articulate, but you know, when, when you have, when you have responsibilities like that, you, you know, you're always worried that, that you're not looked at it differently and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, it, it was really something that I wanted to do. And I, you know, I told my dad, I said, dad, you know, like, let's, can, can we make a, make a spot for me and, and I'll earn, I'll earn my way, you know, wherever I go. And he was thrilled. Um, you know, I think he was really excited about it and, you know, it's just, it's worked out great. And now we're, we're heading off into the, the next phase of, of the, the business celebrating 50 years next year, which is kind of it's amazing, kind of crazy. It's just, I mean, 50 years is incredible in the home building business. That's, it's really a great achievement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, I think that we don't, we don't talk about a lot, but you know, I, I think that, uh, there's a lot of people here that are, that are proud of that. And, and, you know, we're getting into the, the whole, like you built my grandparents house type <laughs> thing. You know what I mean? It's and, amazing. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say it, sometimes my dad will meet somebody and they'll say, Hey, do you remember the name, you know, Johnson and blah, blah, blah in, in, in this town. And he'll be like, yeah, maybe. Well, that, that was my parents. You built my parents house. And, um, you know, we're building our, our, our second home with, with you guys. And you know, oh, okay. You know, he might not remember, <laughs> but, but maybe he will, you know, uh, he, he used to sell, sell a lot of, uh, houses himself. I think his, his record was, uh, 80 in one year, um, <laughs> back in, in the, uh, early eighties, um, to people that had their own land. That was the business back then. Yeah. Yeah. That's just amazing. I mean, what a great story. And, and I really appreciate coming on, Ben. I mean, just so much wealth of knowledge. And, you know, just as a sidebar, you know, what, 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 are, what do you enjoy to do? What do you enjoy for fun? For fun? Outside of work? Yeah, like outside I mean, of role as GM. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sports guy. I'm a Philly sports guy. Um, you know, I, I, love, I love sports. I love, I love watching sports. I, like you, I play. Um, you know, I try to play once a week or so. Um, you know, a and lot those of, Philly fan bases, I mean, they're pretty lighthearted. They're pretty easy. So oh yeah. Really easy going. <laughs> we have great reputation, you know, um, it, it's, it's great nothing. Reputation. Yeah. Speaking of companies, speaking of reputation, it might be a little bit different for the Philly fans. It so. is totally different. It's a, it's a different <laughs> mindset. You know, I mean, I've, I've seen it all. I've, I, my first game at the Eagles was, uh, in, when I was eight and, um, I, that's where I learned all the bad words, you know, 
No, I, you know, right now in the phase of my life, you know, I got three young kids, you know, nine, seven and four. So, um, you, you caught me by surprise there when you said, what do I like? Because it's yeah. like, I, it's, it's, so it's really narrow right now, you know? Yeah. Um, but love the, love to travel. Last couple of years have been, uh, annoying with that stuff, but, um, family time, man. I don't have six kids though. Yeah. Yeah. You're not too far off. I mean, it's funny because mm-hmm. I have like kind of how you grew up. I mean, I have five daughters and a son. And it's funny because um, as a kid, you know, I used to love playing like Mario Brothers and stuff, right? The classic, mm-hmm. you know, Nintendo mm-hmm. we had as kids. You know, as we get older, I mean, we just don't have time. I mean, that's not, uh, you know, but my son who's six now, like he was playing with his cousin. And so like on the weekend, he'll be like, dad, can you play Mario with me? And we'll have fun. It's just fun at that age, you know. Oh, playing. yeah you know, find those moments, but he's, he's big into basketball and golf, which is fun because those are definitely my passion. So it's fun that he loves, loves those. You know what I, what I've, I, I do have one thing that I've recently gotten back into. I was a big Legos guy when I was little. Okay? Yes. And right? now that I have, you know, a son of my own and he, he likes Legos that uh, now, now I'm, I'm in touch with, you know, what, what's out there and it's unbelievable, <laughs> you know, nothing like what we had. Oh no, no. I had like the basic blocks. I mean, so yeah. I've I've uh, probably spent more time in in our in our uh, finished basement putting Lego sets together over the last two months than I have in my whole life, and and uh, it's kind of like more my thing than my son's at this point. You know, we're <laughs> building this big city, so you know every every weekend I find myself like I think I might go to Target and see if that next uh, section of the next city is available. Out. Yeah, yeah. See, but the funny thing is, Ben, it's like when you're a kid, like you couldn't buy a $30 set of Legos, you know, and they're more expensive now. But the reality is now you have the opportunity where you actually could go get a set and it's not, yeah, you can actually do it. And so same when my kids are playing Legos and, you know, Transformers, I'm like, hey, this is, it's like bringing it all back. Oh yeah. My wife's like, we need a, we need a Lego room at this point because I'm (laughs) building this stuff and just like putting it in my son's room and he's got like this city and I'm like, hey. Yeah, I'm having fun. Oh, that's awesome, Ben. We, we, I, I really appreciate making time. I know how busy you are, especially in your role out there. And um, as we close here, so uh, where can our listeners find you? Um, well, our website, berkshomes.com, B-E-R-K-S-H-O-M-E-S.com. I know you haven't seen me a lot on Instagram. I'm just uh, struggling with uh, keeping up with everybody, but my handle is bhdb underscore ben and um really that that's my remodeling company which still exists my partner runs it and um you know they do a lot of cool stuff uh over there as well that's uh bh design build and check them out they do a great job and stuff well ben you've been amazing thanks for sharing some of your secrets on you know hiring vetting you know, company culture systems. I mean, it's so valuable. So really appreciate it. All right. Next, next uh, podcast, we'll do the uh, mistakes. That'll be a longer one. Oh, then, <laughs> right. <laughs> We're really going to air some dirty laundry. I could, I could go on for a couple hours. That, I don't think we can keep that. That's all right. Hour, so. That's all right. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. It was fun. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, 
Give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.